All right, well, welcome. Welcome to Park Church. Good morning. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, we have child dedication in uh, a little bit after the message and right before communion. So if you're new, if you're here, you're, if you're visiting for that, I want to give you a special welcome. We're glad that you're here. Let me get you caught up on kind of where we are. Uh, we're in the middle of this series right now called Rooted, where we're asking big questions of faith, um, the kind of questions where the answers have the potential either to root and to like ground and to really provide for us the sort of foundation for our faith that we need, or the answers to these questions have the potential to sort of, um, to sort of undermine our faith, to sort of, you know, cut it out and wash it away. Is there a bit of a thing going on? With the sound? No. Okay. Maybe that's my imagination. All right. <laughs> Whoever you are and wherever you come from, whatever your beliefs are about God, whether you have faith or not, our belief here is that God, God wants for you to have faith. Um, God wants for his life to be planted inside of you in such a way that your faith, that your life grows and it has deep roots in God so that it can withstand any storm. Uh, it can withstand any bomb cyclone that the world throws at you. Um, and so that it can grow over time, and it could grow, and it could bear fruit in the world. Fruit that's good for you, and fruit that's good for the world. Last week, we asked this question up there. It was, how can I make the most of my life? If you were here, you remember. If you weren't here, um, here's what we talked about. We talked about a story of a woman who uh, had this thing of great value. It was a jar of ointment. It was of great value. And what she did with it is she took it, she broke it open, and she poured it on Jesus to anoint him. Um, and this was something that, this was a great service that she did for him. Um, and the message was, take what you have that's of great value and break it open. Use it to serve Jesus. And it was a pretty wide message. Take what you have and serve Jesus with it. We're going to return to this question this week in sort of a part two, but we're going to give it a little more focus and maybe a little more depth. There was something in the story last week that we really didn't have a chance to go over. I mentioned it and made kind of a joke about it, but we really didn't have a chance to go through it. You might remember um, in this story, this woman does this at this party, and there's all these people at this party, and the people are starting to get angry about what she did because this jar was worth a lot of money. It was worth about a year's salary. And they were thinking, gosh, that's sort of a waste. She just broke it open and dumped it on this guy. That seems like that could have been used better than that. Um, they could have, you know, she could have sold that and given that money to the poor. And they're starting to get angry with her about this. And Jesus sees this. Um, and this is, what, this is what Jesus says. He says, leave her alone. She did something that's good for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you could show kindness to them whenever you wish. This line always kind of stuck out to me. I think he says this uh, in part to defend this woman and to say, like, leave her alone. What she did was really good. I think also he said it to say to the people there, you always have the poor with you. If you care about the poor so much, if you want to serve them, uh, then get off your butts and you could serve them anytime that you wish. This line has always stuck with me, though. Why? Because I live in Shrewsbury, New Jersey. If you're from around here, you know about Shrewsbury, New Jersey. If you're not from around here, you might not. So let me tell you about Shrewsbury, New Jersey. It's about a mile, it's about a square mile. Uh, it's, you know, kind of all upper middle class, upper upper class, that sort of situation. Uh, it's a kind of a tight-knit community. And here's the deal. According to the last census, we have zero poor people in our town. 
We have zero people below the poverty line. There's actually one person who's listed as being below the poverty line, and there's a really good chance it's an elderly person who has no income, so technically she's below the poverty line, but we know where she lives. She lives in some gigantic home in the middle of Shrewsbury, and she's not anything like poor, right? <laughs> it's easy for someone like me, and if you grow up, if you live in a town like I do, it's easy for someone like me to forget that there are actually poor people around me. Um, it's easy for me to think, well, I live in Shrewsbury, everyone lives in Shrewsbury, everyone is okay, everyone has exactly what they need. The fact is, though, um, I could throw a baseball, literally throw a baseball from my yard across Newman Springs Road into Red Bank. And Red Bank is a town where not everyone has what they need. There are pockets of people there who don't have what they need. And if you live in a town like Long Branch, or if you live somewhere like Neptune or Asbury, or... Um, we live in one of the wealthiest counties, MoCo. We live in one of the wealthiest counties in the entire country. Uh, but even in our county, there are pockets of people who simply don't have, they simply don't have what they need. Um, but it's, it's really easy for us to forget that. It's easy for me to forget that. It's brought home for me when I see it face to face. And really the times I see it face to face are times like this. Uh, my wife and I or our family wants to go into New York City or go to Philadelphia. Um, chances are we're doing something fun that's expensive, right? We're paying money to go see a show or get a nice dinner or stay in a nice hotel or whatever the case may be. And you, we've all had this experience where you go in spending a lot of money and you have to walk around, literally walk around people who are sleeping on the street or who are living on the street. And, you know, I don't know what that does for you. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have to interact with just knowing that you're going spending hundreds of dollars, right? Um, my wife, when she has that situation, her heart just breaks. She has like one of the biggest hearts in the world. One of the hardest things for us though, I remember, is the first time we did that with our kids when our kids were old enough. Have you had that experience of having to explain to your seven-year-old or to your eight-year-old why someone in the world lives like this? It's not an easy thing to explain. Worse, though, worse is the situation that we can have when we're sitting on our couch watching television, and this is not to be callous and not to be crude, but when the commercial comes on of the starving kid in the third world country, right? This is the one where the kid is emaciated and his belly is bloated and there's flies and um, they're, they're playing on a garbage dump and they're interacting with the sewer in some way where they're drinking out of it or just going to the bathroom in it. It's a horrible scene. And if you've ever had to explain that to your child, it's impossible to explain. Because my children have double and triple of what they need. They have more than they could ever need. And there are kids around the world, and adults, kids around the world who don't have what they need. It's an impossible thing to explain. Again, when my wife is sitting next to me and, she, and we're watching this, she usually has to turn away or uh, turn, the, turn the channel because her heart her heart is just so big, especially for children. Her heart breaks when she sees that sort of thing. Um, I, I am sort of the opposite of that. I'm like the Grinch. You've, you've seen that, like with like the shriveled heart? Um, just kidding, I have a heart. It, I find it growing bigger, like the Grinch. I, I do find it growing bigger over time. Um, for me, it's not my heart that breaks it, but it's my brain that breaks. I used to be an engineer, right? So I'm thinking, let's, let's work the problem. Like, what is the cause of this sort of thing? 
How did the world get to this place? Is it just because we in the West have embarrassingly so much and the rest of the world doesn't? And the answer is like, yes. Is it because of our politics? Yes. Is it because of um, the tyranny that has gone around the world, the way we've stripped resources and life from people in places that don't have? Yes. Colonialism, um, globalization, all like, yes, all of that. And so I start to think to myself, well, what's the solution to this? And I immediately am like, well, there is no solution. Um, governments around the world are just too corrupt. Things are too crazy. Um, the governments that do care have poured zillions of dollars into these places, and they seem to be barely cracking the surface. You have nonprofits who are doing this. You have um, philanthropy organizations who are doing this. And it's just those people have all the resources in the world, and they're barely cracking the surface, right? And then I think to myself, well, what can I do? And the answer is nothing. And then it's like, well, what's my role in it? What's my part in it? And I look down at my clothes, and I'm sure all of my clothes were made in a place like this, right? I mean, I happen to buy my shoes used off of eBay. I'm not beyond buying used shoes. But I'm sure that my shoes were made by some kid uh, in some factory somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, who will just never have the opportunities in his lifetime that my kids will have in a week, right? Uh, and so what do we do with that? Where do, we, where do we go with that? What can I do with that? And I just think to myself, the answer is nothing. And then you think about the other kinds of poverty, not just poverty, poverty, but you think about um, all the other poverties out there, uh, social poverty and spiritual poverty and psychological poverty, um, emotional poverty, all the stuff that's out there. And it's just so overwhelming. Uh, and, and, and I read a study this week that basically said poverty is basically uh, the result of broken relationships. Because if people actually cared about one another, there would be no such thing as a poor person. And if wealthy nations actually cared about poor nations, there wouldn't be such, such a thing as poverty. It's, it's a product of broken relationships. And then so you start to think about the brokenness out there. All of the brokenness in the world, um, the broken families, the broken marriages, the broken homes, the broken people. You start to think about all the things that are wrong out there. Um, the child trafficking and the sex trafficking and um, the child slavery that still exists and um, child abuse and the addictions that are out there. And you think about all of that. And then you start to think about the natural disasters that, that, that can just take away, um, take away life from people, take away what they had, what they've built. It gets taken away. You think about the unnatural disasters like what happened in uh, Florida a few weeks ago. And this is, just, this, is just, this is just overwhelming to think about. And what do we do with it? It's too much for me. I get overwhelmed. I get overmatched by this wide, 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 and deep array of need out there. Um, the systems and structures, all the, all the problems that exist are too much for me to comprehend, even a fraction of how we could fix it. And what happens for me, and I wonder if this happens to you too, is that because there's just no answer to it, because the problem is too big, it's easier for me just to ignore it. It's easier for me to turn off from it. It's easier for me to just put it aside. It's easy for me to sit on my couch and watch Netflix and just be paralyzed because there's nothing, there's nothing that I can actually do about it. It's so overwhelming, I can't imagine doing anything of value to fix this for everyone. So what ends up happening is that I do nothing for anyone. I do nothing for no one. 
I get caught up in this. I bet a lot of you do too. And the problem with this, the problem with this is that this is fundamentally incompatible. This non-response is a fundamentally incompatible response with the God who we meet in Jesus Christ. It's just incompatible. When Jesus, when Jesus first stepped out onto the scene, um, he taught for a little bit, he did some miracles. He comes home, he comes home to Nazareth. And one morning he comes to Nazareth, he comes to the synagogue, this is a place where everyone worships. He comes to the synagogue and he decides it's his, it's his morning to teach. He's gonna get up and teach for the very first time. He goes into the synagogue, he sits down, when it's time for like the sermon, for the message, he gets up, he walks to the front. He takes the scroll from the attendant. They didn't have books back then. They didn't have the Bible, which is just a collection of books. They didn't have that. They had a scroll. And so um, he takes the scroll from the attendant. It happened to be the scroll of one of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah. He takes the scroll. He opens the scroll. He kind of leaves through. I don't know what they do. I guess they roll through it. I'm not sure. He rolls through it, um, and he finds, he finds where he wants to read. And this is what he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It has anointed me to proclaim, to bring good news to the poor. To proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops reading, he rolls it back up, gives it back to the attendant, walks back to his seat. It's silent. Luke, Luke, who wrote this, um, Luke says all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Well, we're waiting. Jesus looks around. He grew up in this town. He looks into the eyes of the people um, who saw him play as a little boy, who saw him fall and skin his knee, um, who saw him grow up. Half of the people are leaning in, waiting for what this man is going to say. The other half are sitting with their arms folded uh, because what good can come from, a, from, a, from, a, from the son of a carpenter? What is he going to teach us? And he just says to them, he says, uh, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing of it. What he means by that is that this is what God has sent me for. This is what God my Father has sent me for, to bring good news to the poor, to, to let the oppressed go free, um, to recover sight to the blind, um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what God has sent me for. This is, why am I, this is why I'm here. Why? Because this is who God is. I, my mission is revealing God's heart. And this is not just seen in Jesus. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, we see this again and again. The most important story in the entire Old Testament is a story um, of the time when God's people, Israel, are enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and he doesn't do nothing because the problem is too big. Instead, he liberates them. He frees them from slavery. We see that in the history of God's people. We see it in the prophets, in the prophet Isaiah. We see it in the law, too. The law is the part of the Old Testament that we like to skip over because it's just too weird and it's too hard to read. Um, but right in the middle of it, in a book called Deuteronomy, listen to what God says to his people. Um, God says, look, 
there's going to be people around you when you live. There's going to be neighbors. There's going to be, listen to what he says. This is what God's will is for his people. He says, if there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Give liberally and ungrudgingly when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and all you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on earth, I therefore, I don't recommend this. I don't give you this option. I command you, God says, open your hand to the poor and to the needy neighbor in your land. This is who God is. This is what God wants for his people. This is God's heart for the poor and the needy. It's why God sent Jesus into this world. It's why Mary, um, Jesus' mother, when she learns that she's going to bear the Savior of the world, it's why she praises God. And do you, and you remember what she said? She says, um, God has brought down, through this baby, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And listen, we are all rich here. He has sent the rich away empty. God loves all people. He does. He loves the rich. But if, if we could say this, God's preference is for the poor. God's preference is for people who don't have enough, who are low, who are hungry, who are oppressed. This is why Jesus taught again and again and again about how to have the right relationship with your money. And the right relationship is give it away. Don't let it have power over you. Um, be generous with it. Give it to those who need. It's why he told stories. His parables are about this over and over and over again. There's the one about the guy who has um, a really successful crop, and he has to build bigger barns, and he grows more, and it's bigger barns, bigger barns, more wealth, more wealth, more wealth. And the guy lives it up. He enjoys life. And what happens, it's going to happen to all of us, he dies. And he can't take it with him because you can't take it with you. And he dies, and he meets God. And you know what God says to him? You fool. You idiot. That's not what that wealth is for. That's not what it's for. Another parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you were here the first two weeks of the year, you would have heard this. Um, this is a parable of a man who's going from one place to another. Uh, a gang of robbers and bandits come. They beat him up. They strip him of all that he has. They, 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 they strip him of his, his clothes, his money, his dignity, his health. They leave him there dead in the ditch. This is a picture of poverty. Um, and the rich people, not the rich people, the religious people who he was talking to, the religious people um, walk down the road and they see this man on the, on the side of the road and they walk around him. They go to the other side of the road because they can't get their hands dirty. They don't want to become impure. Maybe they're too good for it. Maybe they're too busy for it. Maybe they're overwhelmed by that kind of problem. Maybe it takes them too far off their course. Maybe they're embarrassed to be with someone like that, but they don't. And the religious people just keep walking. And a Samaritan man comes along, and a Samaritan was the enemy, the natural enemy of this man who's dead there in the ditch. Um, the Samaritan comes by, he bends down, he bandages up the wounds of this man. He puts him on his animal and rides him back into town, and he cares for him himself. And then he pays for the innkeeper. He says, look, take care of this man until he is healthy, until he is back on his own two feet. And Jesus told this story because they wanted to know about what it meant to love God. 
And he's saying, here's how you love God. You gotta love that guy. You gotta love that neighbor. You gotta love the one who is in your way, who is just beat up and poor and has nothing left, who has had everything taken from him. You wanna love God? That's how you love him. The parable, though, that puts the exclamation point on this, the absolute exclamation part, is the parable, it's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. So in the very end of Matthew, um, and Jamie alluded to this again and again in her prayer, and thank you for that. Um, this is a parable, it's really confusing, and it's really misunderstood, but um, Jesus is talking to these religious people again, who are asking him again, how do I love God? Uh, and he says that there are basically two kinds of people, sheep and goats. The sheep are like the worthy ones. These are the ones who are doing what God says for them to do. The goats are the ones who are not worthy. They don't do what God wants them to do. Uh, and the criteria for being a sheep or a goat is very simple. It's whatever you did to the least of those among you. Whatever you did to the people who didn't have enough, to the poor, to the lowly, to the outcasts. Um, Jesus put some specifics on it. If someone's hungry, and if you gave them food, that's how you're worthy. Uh, if someone's thirsty, you give them a drink. If someone's naked, you give them clothes. If someone's homeless, uh, you give them a home to live in. And Jesus says to them, you want to love God, love your neighbor, not just any neighbor, though. You love the neighbor who is the least of these, who is just uh, last on your list, who is the last person that society would think of. I could go on and on and on. It's not just Jesus' teaching or his parables. It's also his life. He was always reaching out to the outcasts, always reaching out to the poor, feeding people who needed it again and again and again. And it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus' followers, too. And you can read about this in the rest of the New Testament. You read Peter's letter, and you see this. You read Paul's letters, you see this. James, Jesus' brother. James has a little book in the end of uh, the New Testament, and he says some scathing things in the second chapter. He says, you know, if you see your brother and sister in need, and you have the ability to help your brother and sister, and you don't help your brother or sister, what good is your faith? Your faith is dead. John, another one of Jesus' closest followers, said, if you don't love like this, if you don't love your brother or sister like this when they're in need, then you don't love God because you can't know God. Because that's what God is. God loves that person. And if you want to love God, if you want to know God, if you want to reflect God into the world, you have to love your brother or sister like this. And if this is who God is, if this is what God is, if this is what God wants for us, then doing nothing is not an option. Being paralyzed, succumbing to being overwhelmed, ignoring it because it's too much for us, because it's too heartbreaking, or pretending it doesn't exist because I live in Shrewsbury, it's not, that's not going to do. If we follow Jesus Christ and if we call God God, then it's just not an option. It's not compatible as followers of Jesus. So what, what are we to do? In one of his letters, the Apostle Paul gives us a clue. Um, he sparks our imagination into how we can actually begin to do this. And this is what he writes. He says, So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. Now, some of us are prone to grow weary in doing what's right because it's hard. It's tiring to be good. It's tiring to do good. If you're a social worker, if you're a teacher, if if you're a nurse, I mean, you might be caring for wealthy people, but these people are needy because they need you to live. Um, if you're a parent, who's more needy than a child? We can get tired of doing good. We can get tired of being patient. We can get tired of doing what's right. We can get tired of 
of giving of ourselves, of serving. Um, we can get tired of not seeing anything in return. And if you're like me, you look over the vast array of needs out there and you think to yourself, how are we ever going to handle this? Not just the neighbor in need who like, you see every day, but like the kid in the, in the country on the TV. How are we going to? It's tiring for me to even think about that. I want to zone out. I want to forget. I want to go back to Netflix and not pay attention, not engage it. I want to forget about it. Paul says that's not going to do. Don't, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good because you're Christ followers. He says, for we will reap at harvest time if we don't give up. Eventually it will pay off. Paul says, I understand the weariness of doing what's right. I understand how it could be overwhelming. But don't give up, don't disengage, don't stop believing, don't be paralyzed, don't do nothing. To those of us like myself who, um, if we can't understand the solution to it, we don't even want to get involved with it. If we can't get in and fix it, we're not going to get in at all. To those of us who would just rather do nothing rather than something, Paul says, I understand that, but don't give up. But rather, whenever we do have the opportunity, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those for the family of faith. As you have opportunity, that word for opportunity, it comes from the Greek word for time. As you have time, as God gives you the opportunity, the time, the moment, work for the good of all. What you're thinking, what I'm thinking, what we're all thinking, though, is we don't have all of the opportunity and all of the time in the world. God, God does not give us unlimited anything. We don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited opportunity. But what, what, God, what God does give you is God gives you your time. God gives you your opportunity. As you consider that, as you consider the place in life that God has put you, the opportunity that God has given you, the time that you have, the margin in your life, as you consider your jar of great value, Paul's saying, don't grow weary, don't give up. Instead, work for the good of all people. In spite of the limitations that we all know, we all feel, in spite of the fact that we don't have unlimited anything, time, opportunity, resources, energy, influence, in spite of the fact that there are problems out there that we will just never fix, the poor will always be with us, in spite of the fact that the magnitude and the weight and the depth of these problems can be overwhelming and soul-crushing, and they can break your heart and paralyze you, and they can make you callous, in spite of all of that, Paul says, don't miss your opportunity. To work for the good. So how do we do that? We see this need. It's too deep. It's too wide. We have a limited amount of time and everything. So how? I want to teach you a principle. Um, I did not make this up. I'm stealing this unashamedly from a famous preacher. Uh, I think it's a game changer. I think it's a world changer. And here's what it is. It's simple. You can remember it. Here's what it is. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You can't do something for everyone, so don't try. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You can't solve world hunger, even though you want to. You can't make every sadness go away, even though you want to. You can't fix all of the people in your life, even though you want to. So do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Don't grow weary, don't give up, don't do nothing. As a Jesus follower, instead, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone, because you can't do for everyone. 
Now, is this going to be fair? No, absolutely not. It's not going to be fair. Um, we were told as kids, right, uh, um, when you ask the teacher and they say to you, like, look, if I let you do that, I have to let everyone do that, and so I'm not going to let anyone do that, right? If you have a pack of gum and you want to share it, you ask your mom, can I give this? And your mom, or your teacher, your dad, whoever it is, says, like, do you have enough for everyone? No. Well, then you can't give it to anyone. It wouldn't be fair. Forget fair. Life isn't fair. Uh, if we were fair, we would never do anything because we can't simply do for everyone what we wish we could do for everyone. And so forget fair. Fair is actually the opposite of where you want to go for that. Um, be unfair. If we bought into this, if I'm not going to do it for everyone, I can't do it for anyone. If we bought into this, we need to turn it around. Do what you wish for one person. Do what you wish for everyone. Do it for one person. And so it should make you ask the question, uh, well, who is, who is my one? What is my one? Who is the one poor person? What is the one marriage that I could help? What is the one cause I could give myself to? What is the one neighbor? Who is the one child? Who is the one lonely person? Who is your one? My wife, Amanda, she's a fifth grade teacher. Um, she, she has this thing that she does. At the, at the beginning of every school year, before the school year begins, um, she sets up her classroom and she goes in there alone and she sets it up. And what she does is she walks around the classroom and uh, writes the names of the kids on the little name tag things. She puts them on the desk so that the kids know where their desk is when they come in. And she writes these names. And every year, she, she does this every year, she begins by you know, saying to God, God, who's my one this year? Who's my one person? Who is the person who, if I pour myself into, their life will be different? Who is the one person who, I know about their family life, and it's so hard that if I could bring a little light, they would be different. Who is the one person um, who the rest of the teachers in the school just have disregarded or who have given up on? Who is that one person? Five or six years ago, she was doing this, and she, um, <laughs> she was doing this, and she came to this kid named James. I don't know his last name. She came to this kid named James, and she wrote James on it, and she, um, she needed to stop praying because she knew that God had given her her one. James was a kid who she knew about because he just came to the school at the very end of the year prior, at the previous year. He was sort of kicked out of his school, I think, for behavioral things, and there was also family things. He was from a much poorer district, and so when he moved to this district, he was living with like a family or something. Um, he, he was too poor to be in that place. Um, but he had moved in, and she knew that like, that school had really not done good by him. They had kind of written it off. She knew that his family situation was really hard. He was a kid who didn't know his father ever. Um, he was a kid whose mom, mom did what she could. Mom tried, I guess, but she just couldn't follow through in being the mom that James needed. Um, she probably was on drugs. She probably was an alcoholic. Uh, she probably welcomed people into her life who she shouldn't have welcomed in. Um, she couldn't be the mom that a, that, that a, that a boy like James needed. Um, he had really no men in his life. Uh, there was one boyfriend who mom had who kind of moved in, and uh, this boyfriend was a really good influence on James. Um, he was a good man, I guess. He was a good man. Uh, unfortunately, though, he died. 
he just up and died. I, I think he had a heart attack, probably again from drugs. But, um, and so that man who James had really kind of hoped in, like he died, he left. James's grandfather, who also uh, was a decent influence in his life, but not really very present, um, but was kind of like a last ditch, he died like a few months later. And so James is entering into the fifth grade uh, with nothing. Um, his mom has given up and, and not given him what he needed. The men in his life have abandoned him, not given him what he needed. The teachers, the people in his past, even the teachers from the year before, didn't give him what he needed. And so Amanda goes into the year, and she's thinking to herself, this is my one. If I could make him feel valuable, if I could make him feel worthy, if I could make him feel like the entire world hasn't given up on him, it will be a success. So James comes in the first day of school, and uh, she does this thing where she um, literally has a red carpet for the kids to walk in on. Um, and, she, and she memorizes all their names and, sorry, uh, she, She's a great teacher. She's a great woman. Um, she memorizes all their names, and so when she walks in, she's really excited. And James walks in, and, uh, and she's like, James, I'm so happy to see you, blah, blah, blah. James looks at her like, what, you know, who, who is this? This is like, and he gives her the cold, like he like, gives her the hand and walks away because this is totally untrustworthy, right? This is not something... Um, she said it took, it took her months of, of massaging this kid, of working into this kid, that I am on your side, I am for you. She, uh, she found ways every day to pull him aside and, and say, directly say to him, I care about you. The rest of the people in your life may, may have given up. She didn't say it like that, but... Um, <laughs> she would not say it like that. She's too smart, but... Um, I'm on your side. I am for you, and you have to remember that. Uh, around November, December, it started to turn, and she really saw, started to see things change in James' life. He became a better student. He became happier. He was more engaged with the rest of the students. He still had his problems, all, all, all kinds of issues, of course, but um, she was changing his life. That year was also the year we had a baby. We had Eli that year, and uh, it was a scheduled C-section, December 10th, um, and Amanda, if you know her, you know this. She worked until December 9th. Uh, um, she partially did it because she couldn't imagine leaving James like that. Um, December 9th, though, comes around, and uh, James is having a really bad day because he knows it's her last day for a long time. And he is crying. He's upset. He's throwing his backpack. He is not having a good day. Um, and she tells him, you know, like, I love you. I'm on your side. I do have to leave to have a baby tomorrow morning. <laughs> but... Um, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. And uh, James doesn't do well on her maternity leave. He really doesn't. He really struggles. Um, all the behavioral issues, all of the learning stuff, he starts missing school again. Um, he didn't want to go to, you know. And so the substitute recognizes this and um, contacts Amanda about it. And she said, look, for this one kid, here's what you can do. You can have him call me. Call me on my cell phone. I'll talk to him. Um, Let's do FaceTime, let's do Google Hangout, whatever the case may be. For this one kid, I'm going to email him. And they, they do that a number of times over her maternity break. Um, she even went in, I think once or twice, kind of like undetected, to go and have lunch with this kid. She couldn't do that for everyone, right? She couldn't do that for everyone. She had to go in undetected or else it wouldn't be fair. 
but she did it for James because she knew that she could do for one what she wished she could do for everyone. She actually might change that kid's life. So she comes back in, I don't know, May or something like that. There's about two months left of school. And she comes back, and um, James immediately starts to do better when she's there. And, she, you know, um, like he's doing better, he's doing better. Throughout those last few weeks, he does better. And um, things, things are looking good for James, and things are looking good for James. And on the last day of school, it's the last day of fifth grade before they go to middle school, they have this, like, send-off thing. Um, and, and parents and families are there with, like, balloons and presents for the kids. And you can imagine where this goes. Um, all these kids have these stuff because they're all rich kids and whatnot. Um, and then there's James. She looks over, and James is just standing there crying because James has no one. James has no family to welcome him. James has no balloons. James has no presents. And so Amanda, she walks up to him. And I don't think she's allowed to hug him, but she does. Um, and she hugs him, and for what felt like an hour-long hug, it was probably just a few minutes, they are just, he's crying, she's crying, we're all crying. Um, and, and, and she says to him, James, I love you. I am on your side. There are people in this world who are going to be on your side. But you remember, I will always be on your side. And she sends him off, and he goes to middle school. And um, a little while later, uh, he comes back to her school. He had a um, half day, uh, and so he comes back to her school, and she's not there that day. I don't know if she was absent or, or sick or just something. I don't know. Um, she wasn't there, so he finds out she'll be there tomorrow. So he walked, he walked two miles to get there. She wasn't there, walks two miles home. The next day, he has another half day, walks two miles there to go and see her. Uh, he has a half day, she has a full day. So he gets there with about two hours left at school. He walks into the office. He says to the secretary, can I see Mrs. Agresti? Like, well, she's teaching right now, so no, you can wait. So this, 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 this boy, who didn't want to give her the time of day on day one, he sits there and waits in the office for two hours for Amanda to come and talk to him. And so they talk, and she finds out James is really doing well. James is doing great. Like, he's, he's, he's growing, he's learning. He still struggles, but he's doing great. Um, it was successful. Now, we don't know what will happen to James, right? Whether he'll grow up and be a successful whatever in the world, or whether he'll grow up and um, just fall back into the toxic patterns that his family come out of. We don't know. We don't know if he'll grow up one day and believe in Jesus and follow Jesus with his life, which, was, which is what we hope. Um, we don't know. But the thing that we do know it's because Amanda did for one what she wished she could do for everyone. And she wishes she could do that for every kid, but she can't. So she did it for one because she had the courage and the conviction to do for one. That kid's life is different. Because she didn't get in to the idea that it wouldn't be fair. And so I'm not going to do this for anyone. I'm going to do this because she didn't give in to that idea. That one kid's life is different. He's going to walk around the rest of his life knowing my mom couldn't do what she should have done. My dad, I never even met him. The men in my life, they died because of whatever. Everyone's abandoned me. Everyone's left me. But there's someone out there I know who actually thinks I'm valuable and I'm worth something. And that kid knows it because of Amanda's courage to do for one what she wished she could do for everyone. And so my question to you is who is your one? Who is your one. 
Who is the poor person who keeps showing up on your radar and you wish didn't? Who is the neighbor who keeps popping up and you keep thinking to yourself, I wish I could do something for that person, but it's just too hard. There's too many needs out there. Who is the one child who you work with or who you teach, who you could do for, what you can't do for everyone? A lot of your friends' marriages are just messed up. You can't fix them all. But what is the one that if you actually invested your time into, you could make a difference in? Who is the one high school kid, the one middle school kid, the one young adult who if you actually poured a little bit of your life into, you could change the future of that boy or girl's life? Who is that? What is the one cause? There are so many good causes out there. There really are. This world needs to change. You know that. We all know it. But you can't give yourself to all the causes. So what's the one cause you can give yourself to? What's the one place where if you actually put your money into it, it would make a difference? What's the one group where if you put your time and your energy into, you could actually change something? What is your one? And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I hate this guy. Because <laughs> I know who my one is. And now he's making me feel bad that I haven't done anything yet about him. Well, that's really a good thing then. Do for one what you can't do for everyone. Maybe you're someone who you've already done this and you are knee deep in it and it is tiring. It is, it is hard. Your, emotion, your heart's been broken about it. Um, I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Maybe it's something that's drastic, that's really life-changing. For instance, maybe it's fostering a child or adopting a child. Right? There is really nothing more do for one what you wish you could do for everyone than adopting a child out of a out of a world that can't hold that child. That's a big thing to do, but I want to challenge you to do that. Because if everyone had the opinion that, oh, we can't adopt because it's too much, there's too many kids out there, if everyone had that, the orphanage was, would all be overfilled, which they already are. We are so rich as wealthy Americans. Do, do for that one kid what you can't do for everyone. You can't do it for everyone, so do it for that one. Narrow your focus. Go deep with that one person, with that one thing. Go long term. If you're not focused on the one, you're going to spread yourself too thin, and you're not going to do good for anyone. That's just the way it works. Smaller focus, deeper impact. This is why um, swamps are swamps, right? But rivers can cut through landscapes and make grand canyons because they're focused and they have time to go deep on the one. Um, and that's what we're after, deeper impact. That's what God wants out of us. Um, not for everyone, because we're not God, we're not unlimited, we don't have time, we don't have the opportunity for everyone, but we can do with the time and the opportunity he does give us. You might not be able to do for everyone what you wanna see happen for everyone. You might not be able to eliminate world hunger. You might not be able to stop the unfortunate need for those TV commercials. You might not be able to see every baby get adopted or every addiction stopped or every marriage saved or every kid given hope. You might not be able to change the world. But if everyone did this, the world might change. And if you did this, at least one world would change. The world of your one. And there's a really good chance two worlds would change because your world would change too. So don't grow weary in doing what's good, what's right for people. Don't give up. Don't be paralyzed. Don't become calloused. Don't see the problem and say, it's too big to face, so I'm not going to face it. It's too big to dive in, so I'm not even going to put my toe in. 
Don't get overwhelmed by it. Don't give up. Don't go down that route because you're Christ followers. Instead, take what you have of value and use it to serve Jesus by doing for the one what you wish you could do for everyone. And together, the world would change. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, your heart, which is for the poor, which is for the needy, uh, which is for the lost. And God, if that heart is not in us, then, then your heart isn't in us. And so we pray that you would break that open within us and make it so that we do have a heart for those folks, for the lost and for the downtrodden and the outcasts and the sick and the lonely. Lord, there's so many reasons not to give ourselves into, into serving you like this. We pray that you would take those reasons away from us. If we are overwhelmed, if we are too tired, if we're too struck by the gigantic size of this, Lord, we pray that you would help us to narrow our focus, to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And so we pray, Lord, that if we know who our one is, what our one is, we pray that you would give us the courage and the conviction to actually go in and to go deep and to give a lot of time to it and resources and energy to change that one life, to change that one world. We pray that you would do that for us. For those of us here who are already doing this and who are just tired or who are beat up because of it or whose hearts are broken because it hurts to get involved with people's lives like this, for those of us here who are doing that, give us hope, give us encouragement, give us your spirit to be able to do that better. For those of us who don't know who the one is or what the one is or how to get involved with the one, Lord, give us creativity. Give us imagination. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear how we can get involved and make it so that our our feet and our hands and our heart move in that direction. Lord, we have so much of great value. Give us the courage and the humility to take it down off our shelves, to break it open, and to use it in your service to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone because you are the one who loves everyone. Lord, on the cross we know that you did for everyone what you wanted to do for everyone. Help us to remember uh, that. Help us to remember that we can't ever do for everyone, so let us do for one instead. We lift these all up uh, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.